Welcome to Coaching with an Accent, the monthly podcast dedicated to sport coaching research. This month, we have two great guests, a young lecturer and another PhD student. We will start with Dr. Anna Stotter, one of the most promising sport coaching scholars in the UK. Dr. Stotter is a senior lecturer in sport coaching at Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge, England. Before joining Anglia Ruskin full-time in 2015, she had worked as an online tutor on the university's coaching football for performance degree, alongside her role as performance pathway coordinator for Archery GB. Dr. Stotter completed an honours degree in psychology at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland and an MSc in psychology of sport and exercise at Loughborough University, where she also did her doctoral degree. In parallel to her academic career, she has worked in several projects with institutions like the FA, Sports Coach UK and UK Sport. Without further delays, it's time to hear our conversation with Dr. Anna Stotter. Anna, welcome uh, to the show. It's great to have you with us, uh, especially because you've been a kind supporter of the podcast since its beginning. Your research has been based so far on what works in coach learning. Um, I have read some of your work, an article from 2014, another from 2017. How did you become interested in how coaches learn and how effective coach learning is or should be? Uh, well, um, first of all, let's say thanks for having me on your podcast. Um, I really like the podcast and um, it's good to have a chance to chat about what I do. So, yeah, I got interested in coach learning basically because it was a PhD project that was um, kind of advertised that I responded to the advert for. So initially my background was in psychology and then sports psychology, um, which I'm sure we'll chat about later. But um, it was, I never even really set out wanting to do a PhD, but I was kind of, after my master's, doing a job that wasn't really, um, I felt like anyone could do it. I didn't really feel, feel like it played to my strengths. Um so this PhD opportunity came up and I thought it sounded interesting. And then it, it, coach learning and coach education was something that I'd taken part in, but not really thought in depth about whether it was good or not that good until I saw the kind of proposal for a PhD, which was looking at um, evaluating what sort of impact coach education has on coaches and coaching. Um, so it just kind of started from there once I started to think about it and about my experiences then I kind of realised that it, it was kind of a really interesting area and then just putting together a proposal for the PhD I kind of just got more and more into it and then thankfully just kept getting more interested as I um, researched further into it um, which is a good thing because I spent a, a few years doing it and I'm still doing it so yeah that's how I first got into it. Would you mind expanding a little bit more on the findings of your articles? I noticed that in the 2014 article, there was a difference between what coach education promises and what it actually delivers. Yes, yeah, so the 2014 article was so it came from a case study almost of two coaches that I followed throughout my PhD. So um, it was kind of becoming clear that the different coaches that I was following, um, taking part in the same course, were learning different things from the same experiences. And that was for a number of reasons, but kind of wanted to dig a little deeper into why that was. 
and other people had written about that being due to uh, their biographies, so how they approach any situation, your previous experiences and what you do and why and what you already believe kind of shapes how you interpret that experience, that learning experience, so almost like a lens that you see see the experience from. Um, but also I kind of found that the, they were working in different contexts and the context seemed to have some kind of influence on what things they were kicking up and implementing and what things they, they weren't. So that was kind of the the key thing that came out of that. But those case studies were a good way of explaining that or showing that. So two guys that were sort of seemed sort of similar on the on the face of things, then like the context that they were working in had a big impact on what they were able to take from the course that they were taking part in. Um so I've just been speaking to a, a student <laughs> on the phone actually just before this about um that experience with one of the coaches who's working in a centre of excellence where he was really keen to try this sort of new style of coaching, um, lots of questioning, like really open and putting more ownership onto the players. So an example was when he had um, got the players in and he'd been discussing with them different types of passing in football and was got them to come up with different different types that they could do. And then he was like, okay, go and show me, go and um, like pair up and um, have a go at just different types of passes, different areas of the pitch. So there was kids basically running around in all directions, balls flying in all directions, and it looked like absolute chaos. I was filming the session um, with the parents who were standing behind me, um, and they were standing behind the fence watching this and kind of going, oh, this guy's, yeah, he's not really a coach. Like, he doesn't know what's going on. Look at this. It doesn't look like proper coaching to me. And then sure enough, by the end of the session, they had another coach um, came along and took the, the kids and made them do a set of press-ups and sprints and kind of shouting at them, traditional kind of um, directive sort of coaching. And um, then the, the following sessions, we had a, another coach was sort of paired up with them that was more traditional. I'd been at the club for a few years and we was sort of forced to work with this guy. So that meant that this kind of newer style of coaching that he was trying to learn from the course and implement, he wasn't able to truly really implement that in his context. So the context was having a big impact on what he could actually learn or what he could yeah, put in place following the course. So um, that was kind of the main thing that came out of that paper, we're trying to, trying to give that as an extra layer of things that impact on the, on the learning of um, the, the coaches. There was something in your 2017 article that caught my eye. Um, if you don't mind, I will read a little quote. Um, it says, Individualized, contextually, and practically relevant learning opportunities are key to learning. Would you say that since you started your PhD journey, um, looking at effective coach learning until now, um, do you see any evolution in this direction? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think um, more coach education seems to be, be becoming more bespoke, so um, more focus on uh, pairing people up with mentors and taking the learning experiences from um, decontextualized courses um, into people's clubs or yeah, the settings they actually work in. Um, so that is definitely happening. And it's just that the problem is that these things take a lot of effort and time and money. So 
it's expensive, obviously, to do something that's really individualised and that um, sends sort of coach educators into um, the context that the coaches are working in and try to link what they're learning to those contexts so that they can actually implement them. Um, but yeah, it can need to happen for you to have any impact, um, in my opinion. <laughs> but yeah, I'm actually doing my uh, rugby coaching qualifications at the moment. I'm doing my level three and um, I have a mentor for that. And most of, some of the courses delivered on um, like together in somewhere that's away from your normal coaching environment, but it, your, most of it is your mentor comes to work with you in your context and observes you and um, yeah, helps you to learn in that context. So um, that's kind of a good example of what's happening. And I think that's the case across a lot of different sports. So people are starting to realize this and they're starting to make changes, which I think is good. So it would be good to see if those things have more impact. So get some research that, um, that looks at that. It would be interesting to see. As you mentioned earlier, um, you have a background in psychology and sports psychology, fields commonly associated with uh, positivistic paradigms. But then in your PhD, um, you were supervised by Professor Chris Cushion, whose work is more aligned with a sociological, interpretivist uh, paradigm. Do you think that having these multiple perspectives were, was helpful for you um, to grasp the complexity of sport coaching a bit better? Yeah, certainly. Um... So I came across more interpretivist kind of ideas and um, different ways of approaching uh, research in my master's. So I did a master's in sport and exercise psychology at Loughborough. Um, but at the time, I just wasn't ready to accept it as uh, something that I wanted to engage in. I found it too difficult to understand, basically, at the time. Um, I remember learning or hearing about habitus from Bourdieu at that time and just being like, what is this? It's, it doesn't make sense to me at all. It was easy enough for me to disengage from that and not do it, but then in my in my PhD, um, it sort of became apparent that that was sort of needed to really do research that does capture the complexity of coaching. So, um, for example, I'd like to explain that a bit further. Um, I spent most of my first year of my PhD doing kind of reading and um, shaping. Uh, what I was shaping the project, how I was going to do stuff, what my research questions were. And um, I started off um, looking a lot into expertise and kind of the more psychological side of things and was kind of come up with like randomized controlled trials and all this kind of eye tracking stuff. And then just reading more and more into it. And I suppose with the input of Chris, um, just sort of guiding me a little bit, um, it sort of became apparent that that wasn't really realistic enough to what actually happens when when you're coaching um so yeah i think uh, obviously chris's perspective and then um other wider perspectives have definitely changed my way of thinking about that and it it helps to create something that's a bit more yeah relevant to what actually happens when you're coaching so coaching out in the in the field and it's also more interesting to hear research that's actually working with, with coaches and coaching rather than sort of doing stuff in the lab with an eye tracker, for example, looking at expertise. So, yeah, it's de definitely helped. And that's kind of the whole point of a PhD, really, I think, to sort of change your perspective and um, learn a bit about different um, approaches to to research and to, to the world and philosophy and all that stuff. It's called a um, doctor of philosophy, after all. <laughs> but, yeah, I think it's a shame that it, 
um, the sort of perspective it took so long to sort of come across them. So in, in psychology, um, yeah, I didn't really get the opportunity to study that um, at undergrad. So yeah, I suppose it's a shame that it took so long. <laughs> you have also had different experience being, for example, the performance pathway coordinator for um, Archery GB. Can you tell me a little bit more about those experiences, uh, what you've done and how it relates or not to your uh, research? Yeah, so... Uh, so archery, that was a couple of years ago now, um, after my PhD, just towards the end of it, I uh, got involved working with Archery GB, so um, I met my manager through some research that I did, um, working with UK Sport, um, evaluating one of their pathway performance programs, so that's where I met um, the, pathway, the performance pathway manager, so I became the performance pathway coordinator of Archery GB, so um, I was in charge of their um, academies for young athletes that are wanting to come, become Olympians and um, the Paralympic Academy as well which was really interesting um, so it was um, I would have liked to have had more impact from my PhD on those things um, because my PhD was about learning and coach education um, a lot of archery's um, coach education takes place more in the development side rather than the performance side and those aspects were quite separate so didn't have a lot of um, involvement in the coach education of uh, their coaches but did I was managing coaches on the performance side so that was also really interesting just to see how things work in, in that sport um, so I think that was kind of the main main thing was just sort of learning about a completely different sport that I didn't, never, I didn't know anything about and just about the way things work in the sporting landscape and a lot of it really is dependent on funding again so it's just really interesting to learn about that um and those coaches were quite well supported so they had um again like a kind of mentor type guy that um would meet up with them and chat to them about coaching coach research and you know archery people are um yeah, keen to learn. I think a lot of coaches are keen to learn and keen to find out more about um, how they can be better coaches. So it's just an interesting experience from, from that point of view. I have done a little research before our conversation and realized that you've made history uh, with the University of Cambridge, winning the first uh, varsity at Twickenham. Um, and then I believe that you also have other coaching roles on a regular basis. Do you find yourself at times um, overthinking your work as a practitioner or you think it's actually beneficial to be a researcher and lecturer in sport coaching? Um, I think it's really important, first of all, to coach um, if you're teaching coaching. Um, so it's, yeah, you kind of have a good bank of sort of stories to help with teaching students um, about the things that you're trying to get across to them. I think it kind of helps if you can relate that to some of your own experiences and help relate to their experiences. Um, and practice what you preach so to speak um i heard tom leader talking about that in one of your other podcasts as well so yeah i think that is quite important and um, to do that and um yeah sometimes i do struggle with um so much analysis and sort of thoughts going on so yeah my level i'm doing my level three uh rugby coaching at the moment with the rfu and um putting on a session on their their course on, on the course <clears throat> so it was quite a challenge actually so focusing on trying to implement what they are what they're trying to teach us 
um, in a session, put on a session and focus on actually coaching it, um, trying out new stuff, analysing how that's going, analysing my own coaching, analysing the learning of the players, and then also in the back of my mind thinking about what's going on in the course and um, thinking about whether I think it was a good course or what what I'm learning from it. Um, yeah, it's it it quite a lot that's going on. So um, I have found that um, a struggle, actually. Um, but I think it is, yeah, it's, it's all good um, to be able to think more in depth about your, your practice. And I think it can only, in the end, make you, uh, make you a better coach. So obviously that's quite, it was quite an uncomfortable experience for me, like trying to put myself up there and um, try new stuff and think about all of that stuff at the, the same time. But kind of from, from my own research, um, when you're sort of feeling uncomfortable then that's probably a good thing probably it could be an indication that it's that you're learning because it I kind of looked into sort of cognitive structures and some of that stuff about um cognitive dissonance so if you're like if your existing cognitive structure your biography is kind of being challenged with new stuff like new learning then that it's going to feel a bit uncomfortable so that's that process of Sort of changing by your biography it's the process of learning so um i think sort of feeling uncomfortable is not necessarily a bad thing it's i tell it to my students sometimes and it's a good thing if you feel a, bit, a little bit confused it's a moment of potential for for learning so yeah i think um it, it does does help in that in that respect um and it's also as a coach um with the girls that i coach at cambridge university uh, rugby club um I think it's pretty cool to be able to say you've got a PhD in coaching, so it almost, um, yeah, a bit of legitimacy that uh, you know what you're talking about. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's helpful. It gives me a lot to think about, um, but hopefully that's that's a good thing. And I'm looking forward to um, to just keep improving as a coach. So I'm still, even though I've, yeah, I've got quite a few years experience now, I still feel like there's so much more to learn and so much more to to get better at so yeah I'm looking forward to just improving keep improving keep learning and um I think yeah it's a good thing um I read a a blog post in which you you described your life as rugby students gym rugby students um on top of everything else you do you, you are uh quite a, a good advert for talent transfer because from what I know you moved to football uh, into rugby and within one year you you are in the in the Scottish um, in the Scottish national national team you are an international uh, player you play for Scotland um, how does that layer also uh, um, affect or not uh, your your perceptions as a coach and as a as a researcher um yeah so I took up rugby pretty late and then somehow ended up being quite good at it <laughs> um, and yeah the, the rest is history so um, I haven't played for Scotland for a couple of years now but um, I've played for the Saracens in the Premiership the Women's Premier 15th and yeah I have a very busy life so I spend a lot of time um, sort of driving to and from Cambridge down to London for training and um, trying to fit in gym sessions and coaching and um, my job as well <laughs> as well as that um, so yeah it's hard um but i have a very full life um <clears throat> so um i think yeah those experiences i kind of find myself because i'm 
getting sort of on the older end now for for a rugby player. Um, I kind of find myself almost I'm just collecting experiences for coaching almost more than playing now. Um, so it's just really interesting being involved in um, those environments. So there are things that I never really thought that I would do. I never never thought that I'd um, be playing international sport. Um, so to get that opportunity to do that was amazing. And um, I just think they're like really cool experiences to just collect and sort of use in just to, again, help with my learning as a coach and as a, as a lecturer. Um, so, yeah, sometimes I find myself like being coached and um, also almost analysing what the coach is doing um, while I'm meant to be playing or meant to be taking part in the session. So, again, there's quite a lot going on in, the, in my mind. There's a lot to think about. Um, but, yeah, I'm just really interested in just being coached by different people and um, sort of learning some of those experiences and feeding that into my own learning. So, yeah, all about learning. <laughs> I'm sure your students know that you play at a high level. Do you get many questions about your um, athlete side um, as well? Yeah, yeah, sometimes, sometimes they, yeah, they do ask about that. And um, it's annoying that actually with women's sport, uh, women's rugby in particular, it's quite difficult to find out information, like when matches are um, and like when you can go and watch and stuff. So it's good to be able to give them that information. And one thing that always really surprises them is that um, like I play in the Premiership of, played internationally and um, I'm not a professional like I have a full-time job and I have to balance all of that um, and that's changing now uh, which is good and hopefully yeah so I think I, I kind of took up the sport pretty late and I think um, for people that are taking it up now obviously they're hopefully take it up a bit younger and have more more time to actually put the time into that and perform even better because they have more opportunities to put their time into that with more professionalization of the, of the sport and hopefully that'll have a knock, knock on the impact on the professionalization of coaching in those areas as well so um again it comes down to money so players are getting paid now um and that'll make the sport better so hopefully we'll make more opportunities for coaching as well and um drive coaching on too what are your uh, research interests moving forward? Are you co going to continue focusing on um, coach learning or do you have any any other perspectives in terms of um, of future research, other interests? Good question. Um, yeah, I, I'm still really interested in coach learning and I think um, there's a lot more people that are now getting interested in that too. So it's still a very, it's still a growing area. There's still loads to look at in the area. Um Obviously, learning is very complex, um, just like coaching. So there's loads of different ways that you can look at it. And um, I think, um, yeah, it's just going to keep growing from that perspective. So I'm trying to um, apply what I've learned um, from my previous papers, previous publications. There's still other stuff that's in the pipeline that's sort of under review that I'm trying to get out. But um, in the meantime, the next step is to apply. So I came up with a a theory of a kind of process of how coaches learn and um, I think that's a good start and I want to apply that more and develop it more so um, that one was done with football coaches and uh, here at Anglo-Ruskin where I work we've got an online football coaching 
degree. And um, I lead a module for that with, um, I work with Ed Cope on that. So I know he's been on your podcast before. And we've tried to, um, we've tried to implement that um, theory into the module. So almost design it, um, design the delivery and the assessment um, based on a theory. So a theoretical, theoretically driven um, learning experience. So I'm trying to sort of apply it and then collect some data to, um, sort of make it better. So the next step is to also learn more about grounded theory. So like once you've got a substantive theory, so like an initial one that can be used in that context, how do you then go it in similar contexts or make it even bigger and better so more transferable to other contexts? Um, and there's like a few different areas of that theory that um, I'm interested in developing. So um, I'm really interested in so when you go on, say if you go on a course, you learn about something on that course, um, but it doesn't necessarily fit in with your context or your biography at that moment in time. Like what happens to that thing? Like does it still exist? Like in your mind, <laughs> where does it where does it go? And can you come back to it at another point? So when your biography changes, then would it fit in? And then would you be able to use it in, in a, at a different time point or? Perhaps if you got a different job and worked in a different coaching context, like would you still, would that thing then be relevant? Would you then have learned it, and or did you learn it in the in the in the first instance, but it's just kind of filed away somewhere? So, um, yeah, I'm interested in developing that further. I think there's loads of loads more legs <laughs> for it to to go a bit further. So that's where where I'd like to go. I know you're a regular listener of the podcast, which I must say, um, it's an honor. Uh, but it also means that you know what my final question will be. So what advice do you have for early career researchers and uh, especially for uh, PhD students? I'm just finishing being, well, I'm still an early career researcher, so I'm not sure if I can give it um, any, any kind of advice for that. But um, for PhD students, I'd say um, be comfortable uh, being uncomfortable because uh, it yeah, it means you're learning, but also um, sort of my PhD was really messy. <laughs> um, I wasn't, because I came from that more psychological um, uh, sort of science background. Um, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't really prepared for that. I was wanted to be nice and neat and sort of, you know, measure learning across uh, different contexts and compare it. But obviously it's pretty difficult to do that. So, um, yeah, just be prepared for it to be messy. And if it's messy, then... I think that's almost like a sign that the, it's useful. Almost like it's more as good if it's something that's applied. If it's something that's um, relevant to what actually happens in the real world, then um, yeah, it's going to be messy. So I'd say um, be prepared for that and embrace it. <laughs> and also, um, I think as a PhD student, with um, like obviously it's a very individual thing, but you really need a support network around you. So. Um, use other people to to help you as much as possible i think i learned that that was the biggest lesson i learned from my masters anyway is um just use other people <laughs> as much as you can um and then obviously you can help them in return um but yeah i think it could it can be quite isolating um doing phd so i think yeah growing up on or building a network of people that can help you and um being part of a being part of a community is a is a good thing and then a final thing, that's quite a lot of advice now. Um, I think uh, PhD, I found that PhD work kind of went in peaks and troughs. So sometimes you feel like you're not really doing anything. 
Um, but just spending a day like reading and thinking is actually so valuable and it's something you don't really get to do when you're a lecturer. <laughs> so, um, yeah, if you spend time doing that as a PhD student, then don't think of it as a bad thing as you're not getting stuff done. It's, you know, it's maybe just a, a trough and then you have a few two more days or like a week or so after that it's really productive and you get loads of stuff churned out um but yeah peaks and troughs is something that I used to chat to my pc pals about so yeah that's my advice and that was our conversation with uh, dr anna stotter from anglia ruskin university i hope you've enjoyed it as much as i did speaking to her now it's time to move on to this month's phd conversation Simon Taylor is British, but grew up in Germany. He started his academic journey in the United States, studying psychology at Virginia Commonwealth University and completing a Bachelor of Applied Science at Union College. Then he moved to Scotland, completing an MSc in Sports Psychology at the University of Stirling, where he is now on the third year of his PhD. Golf has been Simon's sporting passion since a young age, and he has practiced it at a high level in Germany, US and Scotland. Without further delays, let's hear our PhD chat with Simon Taylor. Simon, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us. Um, I'm going to start with a question that surely no one has asked you so far. What is your PhD about? Uh, hi, Francesco. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here and have this opportunity to talk about my, my research. So, yeah, what is my PhD about? That's a, that's a good question. Uh, so in the broadest sense, I'm interested in developing an understanding and how culture can impact athletes through their behaviors. So to be a bit more specific, I'm, I'm interested in fear failure in athletes. So that's like the main thing I'm interested in. But I'm, I'm very much interested in, in how cultures influence it. So um, to, if we think about... Uh, we, coach research we we know that there's so much research out there that exists that shows how like certain types of coach behaviors or coaching styles can be associated with positive outcomes like better performance better team cohesion uh higher levels of well-being just to name a few and that, that's great and that's really important and um, that that exists but when you like look at the the negative side like the darker side of coaching there seems to be less but in like the last like five to ten years especially it's become quite popular and there's more and more stuff coming out and so I just I, before I talk about like my um, stuff more in depth, I wanted to give you like an example of like negative side of coaching. Um, so an example is like if you if you like picture yourself being a spectator at like a football match, you see that like one side is leading and one side is losing. And obviously this is a very like perfect example, but like it's 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 not always obvious as that when you're actually there. So if you look at like the side that's winning, you'll see like the coach is like giving formative feedback as being like giving them like pep talks and encouraging them and, and just being positive. Um, that's always not always the case, but in this example it is. But then you've got like the, the side that's losing and sometimes you'll see, especially at, like younger, when you're like younger kids playing, you'll see like a coach that is like shouting at the kids that they should be doing better or like threatening to punish them or threatening to take them off if they don't perform better. And I just, I, I personally, and I might be wrong here, so feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's just more common than we'd like to admit that this type of coaching behaviors exist. And so that's where my um, research comes in, because I, I, I don't think that a coach 
consciously goes out of their way to try and negative impact an athlete. I, I personally believe that a coach who's trying to pressure an athlete to perform better by behaving in like a controlling or like a blaming or even punishing way that these coaches believe that this will uh, increase the chance of success within the athletes. But actually, we know from research that's been done that this can lead to individuals fearing failure. And so, um, yes, yeah, so that's, 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 that's where, like, my area specifically, and I want to understand that. But before I like, got started with looking at fear failure, before my research started, I tried to find, like, I tried to just look at, like, what's anecdotal evidence there, because it's quite, like, a, a term that's used in the sporting world quite loosely. And I've heard people say it's good, and I've heard people say bad. So I tried to find, like, two examples, and I actually came up with two, like, um, two from, like, prominent people within sport. And so one person, Brendan Rogers, who used to be a Liverpool coach, he said in an article posted in The Guardian that I suppose fear failure would drive me on. So that kind of stood out to me as like, oh, it's like, a, it's like what motivates me, it's like a good thing. But then I also found an example with um, Patrick Harrington, who's a, a, a PGA golfer, and he said, and I quote, I was afraid of not playing well and missing the cut, and I overpracticed. So based on that, you can see that there's, there's, there's positive and negative sides to it. But um, I, when I went into my PhD, I said, okay, let's, let's, let's look at like, um, I need to look at the constructs in sport to see what does the research suggest? Is it positive or is it bad or negative or is it, is it both? Um, so it, just a quick background on this. So basically a person who has fear failure, they learn over time to associate failure with negative consequences and therefore they fear it. So this person who has it, they fear like apprehension or anxiety in evaluative situations because they've learned to associate um, losing with, with, with negative consequences. So just to like sum that up, in, in research, we know that fear failure is a, is a bad thing and should be avoided whenever possible. You have a background in sports psychology. Why did you decide to study athletes and coaches simultaneously? That's a good question. I think it stems from like my own personal experience. So like I, I grew up as a golfer and I've had coaches, different coaches my whole life. And um, I think the, the interaction between coaches and athletes is, is huge, especially for like someone who's growing up and trying to become like professional, become elite. They spend a significant time, a significant amount of time working with coaches. And I'm probably biased because I'm saying it's important to look at both. But in, in my opinion, I think the majority of research in sports psychology tends to focus either on just the athlete or just the coaches. And I, I think there's like we're missing out here because while this is hugely beneficial and it's, I'm not trying to diminish any research that's been done on athletes or coaches separately, it, we need that to have a better understanding of it all, how everything works. But I think nowadays, If we can do research that not only benefits the athlete or just the coach, but that benefits both the athlete and the coach, I think that's just hugely, it's just invaluable. Because imagine if you're like doing, let's say, work as a, as a someone with, working with just an athlete and you, you, you are able to like change their way of thinking. That's great. That's, that's fantastic. Um, but let's say this athlete has like a coach who's like very controlling or very like punishing the whole time. Over time, that coach might be able to impact those, 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 those newly developed thoughts that this athlete has. So I think if we can look at, let's say, the coach and say, all right, how about we try and encourage the coach to behave in a way 
that that um, fosters like a like a healthy environment with the athlete and can also like increase certain like positive outcomes in the athlete. I just think that we're we're just we're like tackling two issues at once here, and it's just it's just it's a great thing to do. But um, it obviously depends on like like the, the the findings of my research. But I just think that's an area that more people should consider looking into. Simon, you are on the third year of your uh, doctoral degree, so you have already traveled quite far. Um, what have been the biggest challenges and also the most rewarding moments um, of this journey? Um, yeah, I think I could have probably written a book about like the, the amount of challenges I had because there's, there's quite a few. Um, not that it's bad, but it's just quite a few that, that are out there. So when I when I try to like sum it down or like try and narrow it down to like just two or three challenges, I think the biggest challenge for me was just coming to to grips with the intensity of a PhD. So when you're doing an MSc, it's just like you're doing the the dissertation, and then it, it's kind of like I, my perception was, yeah, this is this is. It's hard, but it's not that hard. And I mean, three more or four more years of this is with PhD. How hard can it be, right? And once you like get that label attached to you that you're a PhD student, everyone's perception of you changes. Um, the, the expectations change of how you work. Your your own expectations change yourself. I remember the first day when I was a PhD, I kind of just like sat down and was like, all right, now I should just be a, a, like a lot more competent at this. And so it's really like a challenge of coming to grips with this. Um, but also like a, a, another like challenge is also um, when you're writing things, especially early on in your PhD, because like I said, you're, you're obviously not, you don't start off the PhD with being an expert. It takes time to develop how to like write at a PhD level or how to like understand research at a PhD level. And so like I remember the first few things that I wrote, well, the first few years of my writing was, and this is no one's fault. I'm definitely not blaming anyone here. It's just part of the process is that when you're when you're writing something, the the feedback you usually get is, all right, this was good, but change this, this, and this, and this. Or this was good, but this wasn't good. Um, or this was good, but I encourage you to think about it this way. So you're, you're constantly receiving feedback um, in a way that tells you to do better. And it's not intentional from the supervisors. And again, my supervisors are amazing, and I would never say anything bad about them because I have the utmost respect for them. But it's I personally... After like after like towards the end of my first year, I, I started having like feelings of self doubt because I was like, well, clearly I'm not that good because everything I'm getting back, it's always like, yeah, this was good, but this should be better. And I think that's a natural part of the PhD that like people have to adapt to, and I, I consider that quite a big challenge at some point. But enough about the challenges because there are also like great opportunities to be had during a PhD, and I think that the the biggest one for me is just just having this opportunity to learn and to, to become like an like an expert in an area is just really an amazing feeling and I, I really I really cherish that and I really appreciate that deep down. And also then like having like people who are interested in your area, whether it's like more lay people or people in, in academia come up to you and say like, oh, it's so like I'm 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 a I'm a coach and I'm I'm working with athletes and what can I do to like not uh, to like try and prevent fear failure from developing athletes and just having like those discussions is just it's just invaluable to me and I, I really enjoy that um because you see like the people uh just seeing how like how how people appreciate you you taking uh, like talking to them about your area is just it's it's great. So that's amazing. And um Another thing that's been like that has been that I really enjoy is just like 
being able to like explain your research or learning how to explain your research in a fun way because I mean we all know as, as researchers journal articles can be quite I don't want to be able to say dry but they, they can be quite hard to try and portray in a way that makes it sound exciting and so if you if you can learn how to like read an article and then explain it to someone in a way that's fun and engaging I think that's a great opportunity and some, a great experience as well. The final question for you um, is about life post-PhD. Do you already have any ideas of what you want to do after you finish your degree? Yeah, 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 I, I, I do. I mean, it's very, it's very um, optimistic, and but, uh, I mean, that's what I'm hope, I hope it works out. So because I'm doing, like, obviously doing all this research, I'm also doing, um, I'm on the side, I'm doing some applied work and, like, helping out in, like, an applied setting, with some of my research and that, and I, I love both sides to it. And so ideally I would love to like work at like a university and um, let's say like part-time, whether that's like lecturing or like supervising or doing a bit more research. I, I would like to do that. But on the other hand, I think it's important to like further that, like all that knowledge and understanding you develop as a lecturer. I think it's important that we like are able to pass that on to like in like an applied setting. So like, because if you just do research all the time, people aren't necessarily going to benefit from it. But if you do research and then are also able to work with people in an applied setting, it's, it's, it's much more beneficial then as well. So I would ideally like to, to have a bit of best of both worlds where I can work with an applied setting, but also be like up to date uh, with the newest research that comes out and work in, in a university environment. And that was our conversation with Simon Taylor, PhD student at the University of Stirling in Scotland. We are almost done with this November episode of Coaching with an Accent, but before we go, just a few notes on upcoming conferences and events. Next week, between the 29th and 30th November, Ampton Park in Glasgow hosts this year's Football Collective Conference, which promises to challenge the narrative and bring critical thinking into football. Tickets are already sold out. The dates for one of the biggest events for sport coaching academics and practitioners have been announced. The ICCE Global Coach Conference will take place in Tokyo, Japan between the 30th October and the 1st November 2019. The event will be a partnership between Japan Sport Council and the ICCE. Finally, after a very successful second edition in Leeds this year, the dates for the third iCoach Kids Conference have also been announced. It will take place in Limerick, Ireland between the 14th and 15th June 2019. In the meanwhile, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Coaching Accent, at Coaching Accent, and send us your thoughts and suggestions. And that's all for November. We will be back next month with a very special edition of Coaching with an Accent, the first with an international guest. For now, it's better to keep the mystery, but I am sure you will enjoy it. Bye!